one of my colleagues was standing in line at a development conference the other day and just overheard a snippet of conversation. And he was just a mild-mannered accountant. <laughs> and she turned and said, are you talking about Abed? <laughs> so I said, well, yes, how did you know? The mild-mannered accountant who helped lift Bangladesh from the ashes of its violent birth. Today on In Asia from the Asia Foundation, I'm Tracy Young. And I'm John Rieger. In a new book, author Scott McMillan chronicles the 50 years of patience, determination, and trial and error that created the world's largest international development organization, BRAC. The book is Hope Over Fate, Fazle Hassan Abed and the Science of Ending Global Poverty. And the author is with us today, Scott McMillan. Welcome to In Asia. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Scott, BRAC officially began life in 1972 after the devastating War of Independence from Pakistan as the Bangladesh Rehabilitation Assistance Committee, largely due to the perseverance of one man. Who was Fazle Hassan Abed? Well, where to begin? <laughs> a mild-mannered accountant. One of my colleagues was standing in line at a development conference the other day and just overheard a snippet of conversation. And he was just a mild-mannered accountant. <laughs> and she turned and said, are you talking about Abed? So I said, well, yes, how did you know? <laughs> Fazli Hassan Abed was a mild, mild-mannered accountant who may well be the most influential person that most people have never heard of. He was the founder of BRAC, as you said formerly Bangladesh Rural Advancement Committee. It had another acronym somewhere along the way, and eventually uh, it's like no committee I've ever known with 100,000 employees, so it dropped that part. It's no longer just Bangladeshi, and it's no longer working in just rural areas either. So, um, And in Bangladesh, it's so well known that the word BRAC is everywhere, so it's just, it's just BRAC. And uh, the short version of the story, it played a very large role in the transformation of Bangladesh from one of the poorest countries on earth to a uh, paragon of development. Most quality of life indicators uh, are better than neighboring India uh, and Pakistan. Abed first felt called to this work after the great cyclone of 1970, which had an almost incomprehensible death toll. And early in your book, you describe Abed, still an accountant with Shell Oil, struggling to deliver relief supplies from the open door of a low-flying helicopter. Bangladesh was in many ways a very different country then than it is today. Can you give us some of the national vital statistics? Abed could because he was an accountant. He could rattle these things right off the top of his head. But it was basically the second poorest country on earth. Under five mortality was 250 per 1,000 live births. That's 25%. That's 25%. 25% of people born did not live to see their fifth birthday. And um, Bangladesh was a place where you could really find starvation on a mass scale. Yeah, you did. Bangladesh in, ni- in the 1970s was a remarkable place for all the wrong reasons. There was a moment of national jubilation following the Liberation War of 1971, but it just kind of went downhill from there. There is a famous quote, uh, often attributed to Henry Kissinger, one of the State Department officials said to him that Bangladesh would be a basket case as soon as it was born. And Kissinger replied, but not our basket case. The world and the West especially had kind of washed its hands of, of Bangladesh. And things really went into a rapid spiral, um, including a a famine in 1974-75 that was really, you know, people were dying on the streets of the the capital. This is the sort of context in which Barack was born. 
Your book refers to the science of ending global poverty. Um, now, I've heard it said more than once that the poor are poor because they don't have money. So why not just give them money? But Brock quickly found that ending poverty is much more complicated than just handing out resources. Yes. Abed began working in northern Bangladesh in the 1970s in a remote corner of the country where the poverty was grinding. And what he found that was, it wasn't so much that people lacked money, although they did, but there was this poverty of hope, fatalism, both among the people struggling with poverty and among the more moneyed classes. Poverty is just something that is ordained by a higher power. It's with us, like, you know, the sun and the moon and the tides. And Abed began working with small groups of people, mainly landless people. And what he found that was what he found was even when there was a sudden positive shock, you know, a gift of assets, like some goats or some money, it was very common for people to slide back into the poverty trap unless you were to address somehow that prevailing mindset of fatalism. Now, the road from there on would involve, you know, giving people real services to improve their lives, things that had been denied to them for so long, such as credit, microloans, uh, training, skills training, uh, provision of agricultural inputs, all the nitty gritty stuff, educational opportunities, education for the children, health care, access to, to quality health care, all those things. But none of that would really mean a thing if the people did not first believe in the possibility of change. I think you I have to commend you. I think you've done a really great job of taking the very wonky development speak and making it readable. Um, and I was particularly fascinated by the um, peasant perception surveys. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Oh, there were these fascinating series of studies that Brack did in the 1970s. They hired ethnographers. They hired anthropologists and ethnographers to go into uh, these rural places and, and, and live there for a very long time and just asking one series of open-ended questions after another. Where, where do the resources go? When resources come to the village in the form of food aid, for instance, who, who gets it? Actually, the subtitle of, of one of these studies was, Who Gets What and Why? And what they found was um, remarkable and in some ways depressing, uh, because no matter how much aid would come into the village, the local elites would always find a way to take it for themselves, always at the expense of the landless and most marginalized people. And there was this very corrupt nexus of landlords, moneylenders, usually operating in cahoots with the police and criminal elements, all kind of operating together. Uh, one of the studies was called The Net, and it was really about this sort of network of local corruption that was it was very very hard to see for outsiders coming in but there was this network of power relations that kept people in a state of uh, exploitation really scott in your book you spent some time discussing the tension in brack's development between the need to be small and local as in 
tracking down these power relationships in, in poor communities, and the need to be large to be effective. Can you uh, run that down a little bit for us? Sure. Uh, there was tension within the organization, but there was never much tension with Abed. I think there was an incident that took place uh, in 1974 where he tried to expand into a new area and he ran into uh, a local political boss who wanted his cut of the action. And he said no. And he, he pulled up stakes and, and left. And I think that was maybe the moment where he thought that uh, Brack would have to become a force to be reckoned with if it wanted to really make a difference in the country. And, and in order to do that, it would have to just become very, very large. That's when he developed his mantra in response to a book by the economist Schumacher called Small is Beautiful. And his mantra was, small may be beautiful, but big is necessary. If you're going to confront a problem like poverty, which is huge and multifaceted, then you need programs that are huge and multifaceted. And that's kind of what set BRAC apart. Some, some, some organizations do get big, but they get big just doing one thing. And for Abed, it was never enough just to do one thing because you solve one problem and another problem emerges. If a woman got a $100 loan to buy a cow, you also worked on uh, improving the market for milk so that she could sell her milk at an affordable price to pay back the loan, with, which, she used, which she used to buy the cow. Uh, there had to be cooling stations built, a system of milk collectors to take the milk to the cooling station, uh, an infrastructure to take milk uh, into the cities and package it and sell it. And he ended up doing all that. And he ended up building practic practically an entire dairy industry just based on the idea that women who had previously been landless or assetless, who now had a cow, deserve to be able to sell their milk at an affordable price. I feel like your book captures the process of Brock's trial and error, learning how to work effectively so well. Can you talk more about a story or two about those trials and tribulations? There were a lot of setbacks, even when Brack became very large. Uh, one story that comes to mind is Abed wanted to upend the rural power structure in Bangladesh. And he developed this idea of giving landless people access to water rights by drilling deep tube wells. And so the landed people, you know, the far the, the land the landowners would buy the water from the landless people, and this would give them a resource that they could call their own. Right? So the elites had already captured the land, the elites had already captured the credit, but here was one thing that landless people could have for themselves. It didn't work. It really <laughs> was a total failure. Abed said something to me, it's like, it was power. The landless people would sign deals with the landowners you know, I'll water your land and you give me 20% of your of your crop. And the landowners harvested the crop and said, yeah, I'll give you 5%. No, I'll give you 0%. And that there was nothing that the land, landless people could really do to enforce those contracts. And so that's why it failed. I was particularly captivated by the story of Brock's anti-diarrhea program. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? The biggest killer of children under five was diarrheal dehydration. 
And the cure for that was literally a simple solution. It was a precise mixture of water, sugar, and salt, all ingredients that were commonly available in the villages, but you had to mix it properly and you had to administer it to the child in a certain way. So Abed had already been working with uh, landless rural women for quite a long time. And he thought that if I could just teach everybody how to make this, get the recipe down right and get them to memorize it, I could save a lot of lives. Basically, he developed a system of mobile teams of trainers who went door to door across the countryside, almost like a traveling medieval theater troupe, you know, imagine like Chaucerian Britain, right? <laughs> but they were just teaching people how to make oral rehydration solution. And there were a set of incentives uh, through which the trainers were paid based on how much of the uh, knowledge was retained 30 days later. It was quite it was quite complicated at the same time it was quite elegant in its simplicity. And in the end, 13 million mothers were reached. That's a huge number. And it is still held up as a case study in mass behavior change. That's amazing. Those people talking to people in the villages, um, were they always welcome? Uh, no, uh, <laughs> because the rumors began to get started that this fluid that they were teaching people to drink, which again was just water, sugar, and salt mixed in precise quantities, would cause sterility. And this caught on among the men. And so the women would learn how to mix this fluid and how to use it. And then when the child got diarrhea, the men said, oh, no, absolutely not. You know, you're not, we're not using that. And so they had to counter that. And it was through pretty simple means. I mean, you know, you mix the fluid right in front of the, of, of the women and then you drink it yourself. Or, you know, there was an advanced team that went to the village that convened the men and said, this is what we're here to do. And there will be a team of women coming right after us to talk to the wives and the mothers. Uh, and, and, and this is what this is all about. So just a certain uh, systematic effort of, of, of sensitizing people to what was really going on uh, took care of that problem. Well, it's five decades later. Scott, bring us up to date. Where is BRAC today and what is it doing? We're in about a dozen countries, okay? So we're not planting flags in, in 50 or more countries. And that's part of a deliberate strategy of going deep instead of going wide, right? So wherever we go, we tend to want to have a nationwide presence. So we're active in six countries in uh, sub-Saharan Africa right now. So we're active in Sierra Leone and Liberia. We're active, uh, we are active in Rwanda now. We're go going to soon be active in Kenya. And we, will, uh, we are already uh, quite active and uh, gone to quite a large scale in Uganda uh, and Tanzania as well. The mix of different activities and programs is microfinance where you know BRAC is one of the world's largest providers of microloans and yet we're not a microfinance institution as such. Uh, healthcare provision, uh, we have quite a large healthcare program uh, in Uganda specifically and of course 90% of the operations are still in Bangladesh. It really has achieved its greatest success in Bangladesh but there are quite notable success stories. I'm thinking, for instance, of an adolescent girls empowerment program 
that is quite active in Uganda called Empowerment and Livelihood for Adolescents. We've collaborated with outside researchers from uh, London School of Economics, University College London, and elsewhere to do randomized control trials on this program and have shown, these, these studies have shown quite a level of success in improving the lives of, of adolescent girls. Double-digit impact on income generation, for instance, and a one-third reduction in early pregnancy, for instance. That's fantastic. So quite remarkable stuff. Uh, Scott, you've, you've talked so well about what inspired you to write this book. Um, who is this book for? Good question, because there are a lot of development books out there that are wonky development books filled with acronyms and filled with jargon. And I didn't want to write that. So this book is for my mom. <laughs> it's always for mom. <laughs> it's for anybody that wants to sort of understand what social change can really look like, but wants the narrative as well. There's a story there. I mean, the man had a remarkable life. And uh, and I was very I was very privileged to hear some of his stories. Scott McMillan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Pleasure being here. That's our show for this week. The book is Hope Over Fate, Fazle Hassan Abed and the Science of Ending Global Poverty by Scott McMillan. And Scott will be joining Tracy and me on November 14th at the World Affairs Council in San Francisco, along with the Asia Foundation's Kasi Faisal Ben Siraj and Alyssa Albee of Larkin Street Youth Services for a conversation called How Change Happens, Empowerment to End Poverty and Homelessness. We hope we'll see some of you there. Until next time, I'm John Rieger. And I'm Tracy Young. Thanks for listening.